Father, we come here tonight all needing to hear from your word, and yet we come here in lots of different places. Some of us came here excited. Some of us came here discouraged. Some of us came here as committed followers of you. Some of us are still exploring who you are and what you say about yourself and your word. No matter where we're at, God, no matter what we need tonight, whether we need conviction or comfort, whether we need to be stirred up or calmed down, God, would you speak to us now through your word? Would you show us Jesus? Would your Holy Spirit be present with us so that you would accomplish your purposes for your glory and our good? I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you don't know the problem, you can't know the answer. Those of you all that were here last week or last large group might be thinking, is this deja vu? Because that was the exact point that we were making from 2 Samuel chapter 11 last time. If you don't know the problem, you can't know the answer. And what we saw last time through the lens of this sad story in King David's life was something that was true for each and every one of us. We saw that we actually need to look at the ugliness of our sin in our lives in honest ways if we are going to actually grow in seeing the beauty of our Savior. In fact, we, we can't even begin to have a relationship with the God of grace if we don't recognize the sin that makes his grace necessary. So we don't talk about sin because we think it's fun and exciting and want to feel bad about ourselves, but we actually talk about sin so that we can know who Jesus is with all the more joy and clarity. But this time we're looking at a complementary truth that we all need to understand. Not that we just need to understand our sin to know God's grace, to begin a relationship with God. We also need to see the way that God's grace right now is working in our lives if we are going to persevere in our relationship with God. If we are going to live out what the Bible calls a life of repentance, which is hard and full of suffering and long, we need to be convinced that God's grace is not just a future reality, although that's true and we'll get to that, but is something that is working out in our lives even now. So with that goal in mind, hoping not just to help us begin a relationship with God, but to persevere in it, to grow in it, to become more and more like Jesus over time, we're going to look at two things tonight. We're going to look at the fruit of sin, and then we'll spend some more time unpacking the fruit of grace. Since we talked a lot about the fruit of sin in one way or another last time, We're not going to spend as much time unpacking that this week. If you missed it, you're welcome to go back. We have a podcast that you can find uh, online and, and listen to that sermon if you're interested. But what we saw in this passage is that David had committed great, great sins. He slept with his best friend's wife. He used his kingly power to orchestrate events, to accomplish a cover-up, and then he eventually had one of his good friends killed. This picture that we get of David in 2 Samuel 11 is so different from the picture that we got of David several weeks ago 
in 2 Samuel chapter 9 when we had a guest speaker with us, Josue Pernillo, and he shared with us about the story of David and Mephibosheth, when David was actually a beautiful picture of King Jesus, the King of grace who loves to welcome sinners, welcome needy people, welcome people that are messy and outcast to his table. That picture of David is very different from the one that we get in this passage. Here, David points us to Jesus, yes, but he points us to his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus Christ, not by the ways that he's like him, but by the ways that he is unlike him. And because of David's sin in this passage, all sorts of trouble comes into his life. He has strife in his family for years to come. You can keep reading 2 Samuel to hear about that. There's war in his kingdom, but the saddest fruit of his sin that we see in this passage is the sickness and eventually the death of his son. Now, the loss of David's child, when we really wrestle with what that would have meant for him and for Bathsheba and for their family, it is a tragedy. And like any tragedy, there aren't easy answers. I don't come here tonight prepared to give you an easy, sweet answer, a gift with like a bow tied neatly on top as to why God and his justice decided this this child should die instead of David. But what I do know is that the principle that is at work in this passage is not new. That from the very beginning of history, from the very beginning of the Bible, the sad reality is that death comes from sin. Death comes from sin. And in light of David's great sin, we should not be surprised to see God's justice in this passage in the form of death. What we should be surprised to see, but what we do see is that David doesn't just meet with God's justice, he also meets with God's grace. And the, the clearest way that we see that from 2 Samuel 12 is that David himself did not die because of his sin. Though he in his sin deserved God's just judgment, God in a sense commuted that sentence. He didn't punish David in the way that he deserved. So I don't know why David's child had to die, but just like we saw last time with Uriah, we see that David's child here is actually a pointer to another son of David who would come. That though Uriah and David's newborn child didn't have any say in the matter, they are relatively innocent people that are receiving the punishment on behalf of someone else, on behalf of a sinner. And a thousand years after these events, the core message at the, the, the center of the Bible, the center of the Christian faith, if you're exploring who Jesus is tonight, this, this is maybe the thing I want you to hear most clearly. The core message is that Jesus came to be our substitute. He came to receive the fruit of sin in our place, to eat that sour fruit, the fruit of death, so that he could extend to us the fruit of grace, the fruit of life that he deserved by his perfect obedience. And when he did that, Jesus dealt once and for all, this is where we start to dip our toes into the good news and we'll spend a lot of our time unpacking this. Once and for all, Jesus dealt with the root of sin, the root problem. The root issue that our hearts are guilty before a holy God, and he came to reconcile us to our Father who loves us. 
But we still see, and David still saw, all sorts of fruit of sin in our lives, on this campus, in our families, in our hearts. Jesus has secured the victory in his life and death and resurrection, but we still see all sorts of the fruit of sin in our lives, don't we? Remember uh, back in World War II, the Allied forces secured the victory on the day that eventually become known as D-Day, right? When they stormed the beaches of Normandy. The victory was secured on that day, but there was actually a gap in history between that day and what would come to be known as V-Day, the day when the war was officially over, when the Axis powers surrendered, right? The same is true for Jesus. The victory is won, and yet we're still waiting the day when our sin and all of its fruit will be eradicated forever. So here's the question that we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking. What does it look like for us to persevere in a life of repentance? Not a life of improving ourselves, but a life of depending on God's grace, turning from our sin, looking to Jesus, growing in relationship with him. How can we persevere in that? The answer is by seeing the fruit of grace that is evident in our lives right now. And we get at least three pictures of that in our passage tonight. So here are three ways that God's grace bears fruit in this dark passage and in our own lives. First, we see that even in our broken world, grace bears fruit in lamentation. Even in our broken world, grace bears fruit in lamentation. In verses 16 through 18, we get a picture of what the Bible calls lamentation. We see David mourning and fasting, and calling out to God for the healing of his child. Now, there's something that we need to understand that's easy to miss. It's easy to conflate lamentation with something like grumbling. Lamentation in the Bible is all over the place. Over half of the Psalms in the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. It's everywhere. Lament is something God calls us to do, but lament is different from grumbling. Grumbling comes to God And it assigns him blame, but it separates that blame from his character. It says, God, I know you were involved in this event, but it's no longer approaching God from a position of belief. It's coming to God with our problems. That's good. But it's coming to God with our problems in a position of unbelief, forgetting who he has said he is in his word. Lamentation is similar to that, but in some ways it's the opposite. It's coming to God with our problems in a position, in a posture of belief. It's recognizing that God is sovereign. He's in control. In in lament, you might even come to God with hard questions like, why God? Why did my child have to pass away? Why did my grandmother have to die? Why did I have to fail in that class? Why did this thing happen to me as a child? It comes to God with hard questions, but those questions are connected with who God says he is. Those questions, those issues, those calls for help are connected with belief in who God says he is in his word. They expect goodness from God in his timing, even if not in our own. Now, you might be thinking, Ethan, uh, if, if the fruit of grace, if the first one you're talking about is lamentation, I'm not sure if I'm that interested. Uh, that doesn't sound very fun. That doesn't sound uh, lighthearted. I'd rather focus on things that are more 
happy and positive. But we sing songs in RUF like the one we're going to sing after we wrap up in a little while. Uh, a song like I Ask the Lord. Because we need our hearts to be retrained to believe something that the Bible says is true and that David understood, but that we often forget. We believe that we aren't allowed to come to God with the messy part of our lives. We believe we have to clean ourselves up and just come to God when we're happy and ready to praise him with full honesty and excitement. Look at what David says in verse 22. He says, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. This is something he's saying after the child has passed away. I want you to notice that David's point here is not that now that the child has died, he's learned that God is not gracious. His point is that he had enough confidence in God's character, despite the massive sins he had just committed the massive guilt that was standing over his head. He had enough confidence in God's character to come and plead with him for mercy and for grace because he knew who God was, who God says he is in his word. David believed when the prophet Nathan told him he was forgiven despite his great sin. He believed that God's promises still stood and that was what enabled him to lament to God, to come to him with his problems from a posture of belief. What does this mean for you? It means that any caricature of Christianity that says something like mature faith means you should be happy all the time, or mature faith means that things are gonna go well for you, or mature faith means that God's gonna give you everything you ask from him, that is a lie from the pit of hell. There's a story in Jesus's life in John chapter 11 when he comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he weeps. He weeps because he's sad and he's angry and he hates death. And do you know what he does next? He raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus knew he was about to raise his friend from the dead and he still wept. If Jesus was able to do that, in the middle of hard circumstances. The same is true for us. It's actually the grace of God and the resurrection power of Jesus that enables us to lament. It's not the thing that should keep us from doing that. Even in our broken world, grace bears fruit in lamentation. Here's the second thing. Even in our broken world, grace bears fruit in adoration, in worship. Look at what it says in verse 20. After the period of mourning is over, we're told David worships the Lord. Why? Why? His child has just passed away. He's been mourning for him. He's been fasting. His servants are worried he's, he's not going to live. Why now does he come to worship the Lord? Well, one answer that's true is that God deserves it. God deserves our praise. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our recognition of how great he is in good seasons and bad seasons. But I think there's also something else going on here. David goes and worships the Lord because he knows that his heart needs to be realigned with ultimate reality. He knows what so many theologians in the history of the church 
have summarized the teaching of the Bible as, that our hearts are like a compass. They're compasses, and if they're a compass, then God is our true north. God is the one, as St. Augustine said, who made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. He's our true north, but what does sin do? Sin misaligns our compass. So we need recalibration. We need to be realigned with the purpose for which we were made to find our security and satisfaction and significance in God and not in any of the things of this world. Sin discalibrates our hearts. Now, ultimately, God alone is the one who can bring that recalibration, who can work in our hearts and realign us with what is ultimate and true rather than us being dominated by our circumstances. But as far as the sphere of things that we can control, maybe the best thing you can do to resist the ways that your heart gets misdirected is to worship God. This is why it's so important for us to gather in places like this at large group to praise God, for you to have a a personal life of devotion that every day you're feasting on God's word and spending time with him and being reminded of what's true. But maybe even more than those things, this is why we need weekly to be worshiping God with his people on Sundays because it's in that context that God retrains our hearts and recalibrates us to find our everything in him. So if you're sad or discouraged this week, uh, your temptation might be to try to cope or numb yourself with alcohol. Your temptation might be to distract yourself with your long to-do list. Your temptation might be uh, to cover up the shame with a charade of religious performance when really what God is inviting you to is to worship him, to have your heart comforted and realigned by this ultimate reality that we, we serve a transcendent God who loves us, who is so far above our circumstances, as difficult as this might be. Few people in the history of the world have suffered as much injustice and oppression and hardship as enslaved people in the American South in the 19th century. Um, I, don't, I don't say this lightly for a moment. That was horrible beyond recognition. But I do want to point out to you something that we can learn from so many of those people made in God's image. That many of them in those harshest of circumstances, where did they turn? They turned to worship. They praised God. That's why we have this rich heritage of African-American spirituals that praise God in the middle of the darkest of times. Even in our broken world, grace bears fruit in lamentation. It bears fruit in adoration. Lastly, even in our broken world, grace bears fruit in consolation, in in comfort. David is comforted by the Lord, by his promises, by his forgiveness. And because, as 2 Corinthians 1 says, because he's comforted by God, who's called the God of comfort, he's able to extend that comfort to others. And he goes and he comforts his wife. Look at what it says in 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Remember last time, if you were here, we saw 
this rapid succession of verbs at the beginning of 2 Samuel 11, that was a literary feature to grab our attention and pay attention to the destructive power of sin. David saw Bathsheba. He inquired about Bathsheba. He took Bathsheba. He lay with Bathsheba. Here in these verses that I just read, we get another rapid succession of verbs. But the point is not to draw our attention to the destructive power of sin, but actually to the power of grace. It's showing us that sin does not have the final word. Even in our broken world, grace bears fruit in comfort, in consolation from God. And we see that in two ways before we wrap up. We see the consolation of promise. We've talked about promise already today. We've talked about promise other weeks. David sinned against God in a big way. He really messed up. He wasn't the king he once was, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's because of God's promise that God gave David and Bathsheba another child. The child who would one day become the heir to David's throne and the inheritor of the promises that we studied in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's son's name would be Solomon, which means peace, by the way, in Hebrew. Kind of an ironic name for the chaos of this episode. But he was also called Jedidiah. It seems like the Lord himself gave him the name Jedidiah through the prophet Nathan. And Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. That very name is calling us back to 2 Samuel 7 when God promised to David that he would set his love on his son that he would treat him as his own, that though he would discipline him, he would not remove the kingdom from him. Solomon was called Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord, because God is faithful to his promises. Later in history, the greater Solomon, the greater David, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus Christ, when he's baptized, there's a voice from heaven, and God the Father says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. David was comforted and consoled, and he extended that comfort to Bathsheba because of God's promise. And God's promise to you, no matter your sin, no matter your shame, no matter your struggles right now, if your trust is in Jesus, he says about you, you are my beloved child. I am well pleased with you. Last, we see here a related comfort, a related consolation, the consolation of life. Because of sin, David's son died, but because of God's grace, a child would be born. And this is a theme that can be traced over the whole course of the Bible. Life comes after death. Glory comes after suffering. Deliverance comes after persecution. Light comes after darkness, and all of these threads come together in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This life after death moment, the life of this new child, is a pointer ahead to this moment in history that would bring all these strands together when God in the resurrection of Jesus would begin to undo not just the root of sin in our lives, but would begin the process of undoing the fruit of sin as far as the curse is found in all of God's creation. This gift of the new child for David and Bathsheba didn't take their pain and confusion away, 
but it strengthened them in the moment. It was a reminder of God's grace that was at work even then. It was telling them that as scary and as strong as sin and shame felt, sin and shame did not have the final word. Earlier this week, I was watching The Little Mermaid with my son Judah and daughter Alice. I'm assuming most of you have seen this Disney classic. And if you've seen it, then you remember Ursula, the sea witch, is not a pretty sight to behold. Uh, She's a pretty scary character. And every time Ursula would come on the screen, Judah immediately would ask for us to skip forward in the movie. (laughs) And most often we did. Most often I just skipped ahead. It was easier that way. But a couple of times I said to him, Buddy, listen, I know Ursula is scary. I know she seems really strong, but I know the ending of this movie and she doesn't win. And sometimes that helps him to keep watching in the moment. If your trust is in Jesus Christ tonight, no matter what your suffering is, no matter your shame, no matter how stuck you feel in your sin, you have a father who can say to you, I know the ending of the story. Your sin and your shame, they seem really scary and really strong right now, but it doesn't stay this way forever. They don't have the final word. Matthew chapter 1 is the very opening of the whole New Testament. And funnily enough, it's a genealogy. It's a family tree that traces the lineage of the promised Messiah Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, this is what it says. It says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew could have just said, And David was the father of Solomon and moved on. That was the normal thing to do in genealogies in that day. That was even the normal pattern in Matthew chapter 1. But he's drawing our attention to this beautiful reality that no matter how rampant and overrun your life feels by the fruit of sin, God is working out the fruit of grace. That he would even use this ugly episode in the life of King David to eventually bring about the Messiah who would make all things new who would bring sinners home to the Father. One day your sin and suffering will be gone forever. We can look forward to that day. God's grace is working in your life even now so that you can lament to him, you can praise him and adore him, you can be comforted by the ways that he's showing you his love and character. And as we await this coming day, we can trust in God. We can persevere in repentance. We can keep living out this life of repentance because as we sang last week and as we need to hear again and again, our sins are many, but God's mercy is more. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you use it to show us the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of our Savior. We thank you that you don't just get us started in our walk with you by your grace, 
but you give us the strength to persevere to the end. God, I pray that even tonight, there might be someone here who decides to put their trust in you for the first time because they see Jesus in all his beauty. But no matter where we're at, God, would you help us to move towards you as you have moved towards us in Christ. Help us to see the fruit of grace in our lives, even in the middle of all the fruit of sin that exists. And we long for that day when you, Jesus, will come back and make all things new. That day comes soon and very soon. It's in your name we pray. Amen.